everyone. Welcome to Catalyst Church. My name is JR. I'm the teaching pastor here, and I'm so sorry I can't be with you in person today, but I'm excited for what we're going to be talking about. I want to start by talking about the TV show Game of Thrones. It was a smash hit. I know a number of you watched it. I watched it. Uh, and a, a big reason the show became so beloved was because of its complex characters and its unpredictability. In the first season, arguably the show's biggest villain was Jamie Lannister, who was also known as the Kingslayer. Jamie is the eldest son of the wealthiest family in the Seven Kingdoms. And in addition to being handsome, he's by far the best swordsman in the realm, uh, routinely winning pretty much any contest that he chooses to participate in. And so, as you might imagine, he's insufferably arrogant. Oh, and he's also sleeping with his twin sister, and his illegitimate son is the heir to the throne. Uh, and in the first episode of the entire show, he tries to kill a child by throwing him out of a tower. So, yeah, he's awful. Awful. So, it's surprising when, by the third season, Jamie emerges as a fan-favorite character. What happened? How could he go from like worst villain in the show to someone that everyone is actively rooting for. Well, in short, he suffered. Uh, see, Jamie got captured in a battle and then he ends up in the hands of some mercenaries who plan to ransom him back to his father, who remember wealthiest guy in the kingdoms, right? Uh, but remember, Jamie Lannister is the greatest knight in the seven kingdoms. And so one night he almost gets free. And the mercenaries realize that if the Kingslayer gets a sword in his hand, they can't stop him. So they do the logical thing. They cut off his sword hand. Whoa. I mean, that was one of those things that fans couldn't believe actually happened because that just doesn't happen to people who are that skillful. It's like in all the James Bond movies when the villain sets this elaborate trap for James Bond uh, and then just walks out of the room rather than, you know, just like, you know, shooting him or something. Well, the mercenaries just boom off with his hand and without the one thing that made him better than everyone else jamie is humbled uh he's helpless he's forced to rely on a former enemy to stay alive there's even multiple times when sort of just for fun the mercenaries give him a sword and let him try to fight his way to freedom with his left hand and he's so bad that they just laugh at him it's incredibly humiliating for jamie and it's in in that helpless humiliated state that he becomes vulnerable and, and we get to see beneath the arrogant facade and we come to have compassion for the real human that's underneath and listen i have to tell you from a writing perspective the transformation of jamie lannister from villain to hero feels like a magic trick i even knowing how george rr R. martin did it even reading the books or seeing it on the screen it still feels really powerful and special. I think this is a promise that is inherent in great suffering. It can break us open and destroy all the walls that we've built to protect that true self that hides within us. Uh, and I think once we see someone's true authentic self, once we see that image of God that is in every single human, it's hard not to love them. It's hard not to forgive them. Uh, so what happened to Jamie Lannister is a very extreme version of what we do when we put kids in timeout, right? Uh, obviously with significantly less torture and things like that. Um, but when we put a kid in timeout, timeout, we're trying to strip away all of the distractions and give them a chance to calm down, to reconnect with their true self, and to try to get some clarity. Okay, I'm obviously not advocating that we unhand unruly toddlers, right? Uh, 
even the especially headstrong ones. I'm not. I'm firmly against that. But we're going to spend one last week exploring Christian notions of hell, and I want to begin with this very serious reflection on punishment and suffering, which, which can be linked but are not necessarily. However, at least in the case of Jamie Lannister, they are, right? We think of both of these ideas, punishment and suffering, when we think about hell. It's punishment for sin, and it's also a place of suffering. So we're going to explore those ideas today as bracketed by God's eternal self-giving love. I mean, what even is hell if God is eternally loving? Is it possible that we might be able to find some way in which the reality of hell is good news? I know that sounds strange, and that's why I want to begin this morning by worshiping God as the God who is most basically not angry, not wrathful, not someone who's looking to meet out punishment, not someone who rejoices in our suffering, but rather a God who is most essentially self-giving love. What happens when we begin there? So let's do that. Let's begin there. I want to hand everything over to Nathan and to his worship team and invite you to stand with me this morning as we begin worshiping the God who loves us. This summer, we're putting your questions front and center. Uh, we spent the entire spring collecting your questions. We got dozens. So we grouped them together and we've been working through them together. Uh, so a couple of guidelines as we begin today. First of all, here at Catalyst, we do not consider doubts or questions to be the enemies of faith. Quite the opposite. We think it matters that Jesus asks way more questions than he gives answers. And we think that asking really good questions is part of how we love God with all of our mind, the way Jesus commanded us to. Uh, secondly, we're not trying to settle these questions. Uh, the goal of this series is to create conversation, not consensus. Uh, these messages are meant to be the beginnings of those conversations, not the end of them. Our goal is to ask better questions together. So for the last several weeks, we've been exploring questions that get at the nature of God's love for us. And so last week and this week, we've been pressing into spaces that are difficult because the Bible doesn't speak super clearly. On them. There, again, we're asking questions that the writers of Scripture just were not interested in. Like last week when we asked, what happens to people who never hear about Jesus, right? Do they really just go to hell? And this week, we're going to continue in the vein of talking about hell. But again, we're, in, we're into areas where Scripture uh, doesn't really ask these questions the way we're asking them. So we're trying to take what Scripture does say about who God is, what God's nature is, how God has revealed God's self to us, and then we're applying those principles to how we understand things like hell. So let's look at the questions that we're going to be looking at this week. What happens to our loved ones who don't know Jesus after death? Will we really never see anyone who passed before accepting Jesus in the new heaven and in the new earth? Is hell a thing? Uh, if there isn't a hell or if there's still a chance we'd see loved ones again, what does this mean for evangelism? Then there's another question uh, like it. If you love someone so much that you don't want to be separated from them between heaven and hell, could you tell God that you'd go with them to hell or give them your place in heaven and you go to hell instead? Okay, so again, last week, we were really careful to uh, address that these questions point us beyond what the Bible addresses clearly. We, we don't know a lot about the nature of the afterlife, both heaven and hell. So we're taking some of what the Bible does say clearly, and we're combining it with what we know about God's character, uh, particularly as God is revealed in the person of Jesus. So what do we know? 
Well, if you were here uh, at the beginning of this little section of this summer, Sonia reminded us that the Bible doesn't say that much about hell because it's a lot more concerned with life on this side of the grave. And last week, we saw that God's love is more vast than we can imagine, that we'll often be surprised by who's in God's kingdom and who's not. And it's that who's not part that we're talking about today, right? What about hell? So uh, I want to start with a reminder about God's character. Many of us have this unfortunate image of God as this being who delights in throwing sinners into hell. Uh, a lot of us in school, as we were growing up, had to read a so-called classic sermon of American Protestantism titled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by the 18th century preacher Jonathan Edwards. And again, sinners in the hand of an angry God, right? This is this, this evil, uh, cruel image of God that we have comes from from right square within the center of the Christian tradition. I do want to point out that Edwards was a slave owner, so maybe we shouldn't listen too closely to his evaluation of God's character, given how comfortable he was profiting uh, from the enslavement of other humans, right? Now, instead of drawing from people like Jonathan Edwards, I want to draw from some words from a letter towards the end of the New Testament. The writer is considering why Jesus hasn't returned yet to end in justice, why God's people are still waiting and often suffering while they're waiting. The letter says this, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, his promise to return, right? Uh, as some people think, no, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. You hear that? God doesn't want anyone to be destroyed. God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. God wants everyone to repent, to turn away from the things that we do that are sinful, the things that bring death and destruction into our world. God wants us to turn from those and turn back to God, turn back to the way of life. That includes the worst of the worst. That includes even Caesar's and pharaohs, right? The, the people who are the, the chief leaders of the so-called evil empires that oppose God and God's people. So to talk about hell, I want to start by talking about why God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Uh, you, you may remember a couple of weeks ago where we talked about how the empire is the natural end of human sinfulness, that, that desire to impose our will on the world rather than trust God's way. Well, one of the first great empires in the Bible was Egypt. The Egyptians enslaved God's people, so God recruited Moses to be their liberator. And you probably know at least some of this story, right? Moses requests an audience with Pharaoh and demands on behalf of Yahweh, the God of Israel, that Pharaoh let my people go. And Pharaoh refuses, so God sends a plague on Egypt, turning water to blood, frogs, gnats, hail, darkness. And after each plague, in order to get the plague to stop, Pharaoh agrees to let the people go. But then as soon as the plague does stop, he changes his mind. And each time, the scripture tells us that Pharaoh hardened his heart. That's what it says. Pharaoh hardened his heart and decided not to let the people go. Okay, well, it's actually not each time. Uh, in three of the first nine plagues, the Bible actually says this instead. But the Lord, Yahweh, hardened Pharaoh's heart once more. And Pharaoh, he would not let them go. Now, this is a phrasing that I think has struck a number of us as troublesome because it sounds like Pharaoh was ready to give in and then God decided like he wasn't done torturing Pharaoh or something like that. And so then changed Pharaoh's mind. But that's not what the Hebrew phrase hardened his heart means. It's obviously an idiom, right? It doesn't mean that God turned the flesh of Pharaoh's heart into like rock or iron or something like that. Uh, it's an idiom that 
in our modern day vernacular would mean something more along the lines of like stiffen his spine. Okay. In other words, uh, what scripture is telling us here is that Pharaoh relented when he decided to let the people go, but he hadn't repented. He relented, but he hadn't repented, which means that Pharaoh did not agree with Yahweh's vision of the world. Uh, one in which there are no slaves, in which everyone gets to flourish, not just the pharaohs and the pharaohs people, but but the Hebrews too, right? Pharaoh didn't agree with Yahweh that that world was a good world. He was just afraid of Yahweh's power. He just wanted the plagues to stop. So he gave in, but he didn't repent. And you might think, well, sure, but isn't that good enough, right? Why didn't Yahweh just say, hey, whatever, he's letting the slaves go free, good enough, right? Who cares why? But this is the thing that a number of rabbis have observed. Yahweh was not interested only in the liberation of Yahweh's own people, the Hebrews. Yahweh was committed to the liberation of Pharaoh too, Yahweh loves Israel, Yahweh's own chosen people, right? But Yahweh loves Egypt too, because the Egyptians, even Pharaoh, also bear Yahweh's image. Pharaoh's empire building, his enslaving, oppressive ways, ultimately lead to death for Pharaoh's uh, enslaved people, right? Sure. But also for Pharaoh and his own people. And so God tries nine times to liberate both Israel and Egypt. But nine times, Pharaoh refuses to turn from his empire-building ways. And in those times when Pharaoh relented, but he didn't repent, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He stiffened his spine. He gave Pharaoh the courage to do what he really wanted to do. This is, this is similar to what we looked at a few weeks ago when we talked about God's wrath as God giving us what we want, right? Pharaoh gave, or God gave Pharaoh the courage to do what Pharaoh really wanted to do, which was say no to Yahweh. Then Pharaoh did that, and then it was more plagues. But finally, finally, after nine plagues, God said, no more. I cannot allow you to continue to oppress and do harm in the name of your evil vision. I've given you chance after chance after chance to repent, not just relent, but repent, to turn away from your oppressive, unjust, enslaving ways, and you won't do it. So enough is enough, right? Scripture invites us to understand these times when God hands us over to the consequences of our choices, not as God getting exasperated and giving up, but as a form of discipline. God hopes that perhaps when we see what our desires bring forth in the world, that we will turn from them and turn to God in faith. This is what the preacher in Hebrews reminds us when they say that God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in God's holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It's painful, right? No one likes to receive discipline. But afterwards, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. That's the purpose of God's discipline for us. That's the purpose that God has in giving us what we want. And I'd like to pause here for a minute because I think it's worth meditating on a God whose love is big enough to encompass both the enslaved and the enslaver, the victim and the victimizer, a God who loves us all enough to work for our collective liberation. Can we pause and, and worship this God? Would you stand with me again? Okay, so what does all of this mean for hell? 
Well, many evangelical churches describe hell as eternal conscious torment. It's, it's even a lot of like statements of faith and stuff. It's this barbaric, brutal idea. This idea that the just or fair punishment for even a lifetime of sin is eternal torture. This idea contradicts the basic understanding of what God's punishment is. Remember, the preacher in Hebrews said that God's punishment is restorative, not retributive. In other words, the purpose of God's punishment isn't to even cosmic scales, but to help us grow and learn, to bring us to a place of repenting. But what happens to those who refuse to repent? What of the pharaohs who in the depths of their hearts don't want to relinquish their thrones or their power to enslave and enact injustice? Well, scripture tells us that a day will come when God says enough is enough. Uh, the prophets looked forward to this day as the day of the Lord, the day when God separates those who follow the self-sacrificial way of Jesus and those who follow the other's sacrificing way of Pharaoh and Caesar and every other empire. This is the vision that we receive at the end of the revelation when we see the ultimate fate of the devil and the beast, which uh, in revelation, the beast is the embodiment of this empire building impulse in humanity. That, that, uh, that way we have of creating empires is imagined as this big seven headed horrifying beast, right? And, and that beast is empowered by the devil. Okay, so here's what Revelation, here's what John sees in his big vision as the ultimate fate of, of the devil and then the beast, which is that impulse that we have as humans to, to build empire. Revelation 20, verse 10 and following says, then the devil who had deceived humanity, the world, right, was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. This is the day of the Lord that the prophets look forward to. Uh, the earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. And so I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And the seas gave up its dead and death and the grave gave up their dead. And all were judged according to their deeds. And then after this judgment... Death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, so in the end, God will not allow the devil to deceive humanity. In the end, God will not allow some to exploit others for the good of the few. God will condemn evil, empire, and even death itself to a lake of fire for eternity. And there will be some who choose to go with them. Some would rather burn than share. Uh, the, 20, the, the 20th century apologist C.S. Lewis, you've probably heard of him, right? Uh, famously wrote this of hell. He said, I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful rebels to the end. That the doors of hell are locked on the inside. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. Just as the blessed forever submitting to obedience become through all eternity more and more free. Right? The people who are in hell are the people that choose to be in hell. Who would rather enjoy their own freedom to oppress and brutalize than submit to the loving invitation of God to self-sacrificial loving life. That's where they want to be. 
But then that burning question, right? Is that forever? Can they repent even in the lake of fire? I don't know. It is worth noting that Revelation says the devil and the beast burn forever, but it doesn't make a similar claim about the people who follow him. It just says they're in there, right? Is it possible that when God gives those pharaohs and Caesars and everyone who follows them what they want, they might come to regret their sin? Could they at some point even come to a place of repenting of their sin and turn to God while they are in the lake of fire? Whatever, whatever the reality of that metaphor means, right? Doesn't sound fun. Doesn't sound good. If they do come to that point, would God then welcome them into the kingdom of heaven? Even then. And here's, we don't know, friends. We don't, we don't know. The Bible is silent on such matters. But we do know that God is not willing that any should be destroyed. We do know that God wants everyone to repent and to find the life that God created us for. And I, for one, hope that God gets what God wants. Don't you? So I want to go back to our questions and I, I want to just, again, pause with them and, and, and speak really clearly. What happens to our loved ones who don't know Jesus after death? Again, we I think we looked at that a little bit last week and some this week. I think that there, there, you know, when we have that big final judgment and we see Jesus face to face, there will be some who didn't realize that they know Jesus that recognize him. And then there will be some who thought they knew Jesus who are like, wait, this guy? I don't know. Right. Will we really never see anyone who passed before accepting Jesus in the new heaven and new earth? Again, we don't know. We don't know about the possibility of repentance on the other side of the grave. But it seems like in keeping with the character of God, there could be a chance for that. And so if if there is a chance to see loved ones again, what does that mean for evangelism? Again, I think we, we spoke about that last week, right? Um, if this is, if evangelism is less a keep you from going to hell and more of a introducing you to your creator and the one who knows you, uh, it doesn't matter what our eternal fate is in, in, in the spirit of evangelism. We evangelize out of a deep love for God and a deep love for our neighbor, not, not a fear of hell. Uh, this is the one that truly breaks my heart. If you love someone so much that you don't want to be separated from them between heaven and hell, could you tell God you'd go with them to hell or give them your place in heaven and you go to hell instead? Uh, I, I think the answer to this is no, friends, but I, I do want to observe that this is precisely what God has done for us in Jesus. When the creed tells us that uh, Jesus descended into hell and was raised again on the third day, this is what this is what we see, that uh, God is not willing to leave any of us in our sin, but does everything within God's own power to rescue us and to redeem us. And so I don't know how, I don't know how it's all going to work out in the end. I don't know how uh, we are going to be able to be separated from people that we deeply love and have any kind of meaningful enjoyment of the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, what I do know is that God is love and that God is not willing that anyone would be destroyed but God wants everyone to repent. And I, I hope and I pray that in the end, God gets what God wants. Uh, in that spirit, I want to invite us to the communion table. This is a table where, again, there, there are no requirements to sit here. There's nothing that you have to do. There's no amount of like good that you have to have accomplished or scales that you have to balance or something like that. All that's required to sit at Jesus's table is, is saying yes to Jesus's invitation. 
to committing yourself to his way and learning to follow his path. So before we receive communion together, I'm going to lead us in a prayer of exam and I'm going to ask us some questions and give us some space to reflect prayerfully on them, or, or you can, you know, discuss them quietly with someone that you're, that you're with. Then I'm going to pray for all of us together, and then we're going to receive communion together. So here's the first question I want you to consider. When in the last week have I allowed myself to experience God's love for me and love for others? Now, here's this, another question. What, what in the last week has hardened my heart towards the world that God loves, towards the people God loves? Now, in the coming week, what might harden my heart towards the world that God loves, towards the people God loves? And finally, how can I remain open to God's Holy Spirit this week? How can my heart remain vulnerable and tender in the face of a world that desperately needs love? Let's pray together. God, you have gathered us today 
to face a topic that frankly terrifies many of us and that makes us question your goodness and love. And yet we have seen today that you do not desire that anyone would be destroyed, but that in fact you go above and beyond, even descending to the depths of hell yourself, to rescue us, even from ourselves, to say nothing of what is done to us in your name by other people. We confess that when we consider all of the things that the scriptures are not clear about when it comes to hell, we still have a lot of questions. They make us nervous. They make us afraid for our loved ones. But we approach your table today in faith, trusting that you are good and that your goodness and your love are far beyond anything we can even ask or imagine. And so we come to your table today by faith, receiving these elements, and we pray as we do that they would be a spiritual food for us, that in receiving them, we might too receive your great love for us and know your presence in our lives. Send us from this place, renewed yet again by your deep love and ready to engage a world that so often lives in rebellion against you because they don't know the depths to which you love them. May we be envoys of that good news that they are loved more than they could possibly imagine. We offer these prayers now and we approach your table today in the name of your son, Jesus. The night that Jesus was betrayed, this is the meal that he shared with his disciples. It was during that meal that he took bread and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat it. When the meal was finished, he gave them a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take it and drink it. And so now we too eat and drink. And as we do, we remember Jesus's death until he returns. Catalyst, as you're going today, I want to thank all of you who are continuing to support the church financially and also those of you who are continuing to serve. We're just really grateful that you continue to, to give to the church in this way and enable us to create this space week after week. I want to remind you as you're going that these messages are meant to be the beginnings of conversations. And last week's and this week's, more than possibly many others have, I think, probably raised as many questions as they answered, at least if we did our jobs well. And so please, 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 please continue these conversations in your small groups, uh, around the dinner table, over a cup of coffee, via email, whatever. Just Please continue to engage in this conversation because they're so important. And please remember to ground them always in the deep love that God has for us. Uh, I just I just don't think that any answers that we come up with that don't sound like the self-giving love that we see in Jesus are truly of God. And so in that spirit, I would like to ask you to stand with me as I dismiss us. I'm going to offer this blessing over you. Catalyst, as you go today, would you go remembering that you are loved more than you can possibly ask or imagine by the one who created you and who calls you. And the one who began a good work in you will continue to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So would that knowledge fill you with confidence? Would you go from the, this place in faith, knowing that the God who loves you is going before you and beside you and coming along behind you to keep you and protect you and help you to be good news until that same God brings you back with us next week? Go in the grace and peace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we will see you next week.